I think of curiosity as also being inward. It actually starts with self-awareness. It starts about asking ourselves questions. And we need to have both inward and outward curiosity. It can't just be trying to look outside of ourselves. We also have to look within ourselves. You're listening to The Wholehearted Podcast, and I'm your host, Cohen Tan. I'm on a mission to set hearts free and inspire people to break out of their self-limitations to create the life of their dreams. Each episode, I speak to people around the world who live with vigor, courage, and authenticity. And I hope their stories can inspire you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hello, listeners to the Wholehearted Leadership Podcast. Today, I have with me a special guest, Dr. Julie Pham. She's a keynote speaker, author of the Amazon bestseller book, Seven Forms of Respect. She's also the founder of Curiosity Based, an organizational development firm based in Seattle. Committed to helping people realize the power of their own curiosity through workshops and facilitation. They help people build communication, collaboration and inclusion by fostering curiosity. Welcome Dr. Julie Pham to the Wholehearted Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Cohen. I'm super excited for this conversation. I am very excited as well. Just to start the podcast, right? usually we ask our guests, what does being a wholehearted leader mean to you? Well, you know, I'm going to have to say acting with curiosity, practicing curiosity. And so for me, that means to practice both inward and outward curiosity, to look inside ourselves and also to look outside of ourselves. Wow, inward and outward curiosity. Care to share more? Yes. So a lot of times people talk about, describe curiosity as an outward pursuit in pursuit of knowledge. And I think of curiosity as also being inward. It actually starts with self-awareness. It starts about asking ourselves questions. And we need to have both inward and outward curiosity. It can't just be trying to look outside of ourselves. We also have to look within ourselves. I love it. I love it. I think uh, the common saying, right, it's like the longest journey that a person has to traverse is from the head to the heart. And I think mm, this... I haven't heard that. Journey, I love that though. Yeah, that's a hallmark of a wholehearted leader, right? It's like being able to lead mm-hmm. from the heart, to lead with empathy mm-hmm. and curiosity. Fantastic, fantastic. Yes. So if that is so important, right, it's like, what do you think are the obstacles to leaders serving and leading wholeheartedly? I think that they have a lot of expectations, uh, external expectations. People have expectations of them, and they also have expectations of themselves to have the answers instead of asking questions. As people advance in their careers, they people look to them like, oh, well, you make decisions. And then we can kind of, as leaders, we go, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to, I know the answers. I'm supposed to make decisions. And we can lose our practice of curiosity as we advance because we think that we should fulfill other people's expectations of knowing all the answers. So I think that that's actually what can get in the way of practicing curiosity, of practicing both inward and outward curiosity. And also, our world is just so fast moving now. We expect people to know the answers and people who pause or people who say, I don't know, it's almost as, oh, well, you're not being decisive. And in fact, I think we could all benefit from slowing down and giving it some more thought. So, I mean, if the world is moving so quickly, I think the saying goes that change is no longer the only constant. Change is now exponential. So how mm-hmm. can leaders reverse this tide or really resist the temptation of being swept along by this tide of fast, fast, fast? Mm, so that I think is actually the practicing inward curiosity. Okay. I, what am I feeling right now as a decision comes up? Just what am I feeling? What's impacting these decisions? I think that we are pressured to react rather than pausing to reflect and to think. And even just that pause can actually be really powerful. So I'm going to describe curiosity as a practice. I know a lot of people describe it as a noun or as a verb, something we are, something that we have. I think of it as something that we do. And what that means is we're not always capable of doing it. There are times I can't constantly be in meditation mode or I can't constantly be in exercise mode. There are some times I'm just not doing it. And so with this practice of curiosity, it can be, I think of it actually as three elements. The first is self-awareness. The second is relationship building. And third is clear communication. And self-awareness, 
asking that self, making time for self-reflection, that's really hard. That's really, really hard. And it's so much easier to react to other people rather than saying, for example, if I'm feeling disrespected, if I'm if something's happening to me that I don't like, it's so much easier to blame the other person for making me feel that way rather than asking myself, why am I feeling this way? And pausing that because that's practicing curiosity. Okay, I'm just going to play a little devil's advocate here, right? It's like, mm-hmm. so yes. sometimes when people take that inward practice of being curious about themselves, what if they don't come up with any answers? Could it be possible that they, they go on this inward journey and they don't come up with the answers? Mm-hmm. And so and at that point, it's just, huh, then maybe I need to share the fact that I have no answers or that I'm kind of just stuck right now with someone else. And so that second part of practicing curiosity is relationship building. And so that is learning about other people and sharing myself, maybe even sharing the fact that I'm stuck and hearing what other people have to say, because actually other people can also help us so much. I'll share with you an example. I had this uh, a couple of months ago with a client actually, where they asked me something in a kind of a vague way. And I jumped to an assumption. I was like, I can't believe they want me to do that. And I even <laughs> said, I even wrote back and it's just, I'm trying to think of how to, to respond in a way that's not performative and that is authentic and, and then I, I was feeling so upset that I talked to a friend about it. And I was like, I just don't know what to do. And then she said, why don't you just ask them what they need? It's like, oh my gosh, ask a question. And see, the thing is, I was stuck, right? I was stuck in my own emotions. And so all I could think was, I mean, I thought I had an answer. So it wasn't that I was just, and I, but I wasn't thinking about how I'm feeling. I was thinking about how they offended me, right? And yet that mm-hmm. conversation, when I shared it with someone, I'm feeling so annoyed right now. She actually helped me see another way. And so sometimes there is a limit to how much we can do on ourselves, right? Because sometimes I also think that sometimes there can be too much self-reflection where we just have this long spinning internal dialogue. And then we don't, we don't actually go anywhere because we've already answered what the other person's going to say. And we don't try to have a conversation because we're like, oh, then they're going to say this. And then I'm going to say this. And then they're going to say this. <clears throat> well, I'm not going to say anything at all because I already know, already guessed what they said. So there is, I think, a danger too, to your point of too much self-reflection, too much inward curiosity. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. So I think that becomes rumination rather than curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Just going around in circles and not really like making any progress and kind of really diving deeper and really starting to judge yourself. And I think we also need to have more compassion, self-compassion mm-hmm. to, to give ourselves that pass that we don't have all the answers. And in fact, to your point, when we ask questions, we are also being curious, right? It's like, say, hey, I don't have the answers. But help me. I think that it can be hard for us if we think that we have to meet other people's expectations of knowing all the answers. And it's actually liberating to say, I don't know. What do you think? I get asked this by my team a lot. Hey, Julie, what do you think we should do? How should we approach this? And if I genuinely have no idea, I'm like, I don't know. What do you think? I remember actually I was giving this my up to that point, my biggest public talk about my book. And it was the Q&A part during the audience Q&A. And someone asked this question. And I I remember thinking, I don't know. Should I fake it? I should. I had this little internal dialogue, right? (laughs) Is there something? And then I just said, you know, that's a really good question. And I don't have an answer to that. And later on, people told me how empowering it was to hear someone say that from the stage. Wow. But I did debate. I did think, oh, should I come up with an answer? And then I decided, no, I'm not going to fake it. I just don't know. And I'm going to ramble. And I don't want to ramble on stage. Wow. 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 That's very liberating, as you say. And at the same time, I think that's reversing several years of conditioning, isn't it? I think we are all conditioned by the education system Mm -hmm. because when we were in school, we generally did well when we have the right answers. And generally, if we don't have the right answers, we fail. So there's this, you know, almost fear, almost visceral bodily reaction to not having the right answers. It can almost feel like you're going to die, you know, that kind of feeling. I remember when I was in school, it's like that sometimes. Not having the answers has this sense of 
this forlorn futility of saying, oh, I don't have the answers. What am I going to do now? How am I going to face the music? How am I going to explain to my parents when I come back with a fail for my examinations? And so this is, it's a very visceral reaction. So I can really appreciate why, how you describe it as something that's very liberating. Mm-hmm. And you described just giving grace to ourselves. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of curiosity. It's if we want other people to give us grace, we have to give them grace. And we also have to give ourselves grace because often we are our harshest critics. Absolutely. And, and that's where it's, I mean, actually, I, I was just having a conversation with a podcaster the other day and I was talking about practicing curiosity. And he said, I don't understand. I think I'm always curious. And I said, well, really? Because I'm not always curious. <laughs> I can't. There are times where I am closed-minded. He's like, well, I'm always curious. And I, I was like, okay, well, that's good that you are always curious. And yet there are many people who, yes, we experience times of when we are closed-minded, when we don't want to listen to someone else. We're not perfect. And I think it's actually really liberating to see that, to see that, oh gosh, even my leader is not perfect, which means, oh, maybe I can share when I'm not perfect too. Because I mean, otherwise we get into a lot of pretending. I love it. I love it. I find your attitude towards curiosity so such a breath of fresh air, especially having also read your bio, right? It's like you have a PhD in history at Cambridge University. You also graduated magna cum laude from University of California, Berkeley. It's like, wow, you have some really, really impressive academic accreditations and acclaim. And for somebody like you to still be able to be so curious, I think that's very, very admirable and remarkable indeed. Can you share a little bit more about how, in spite of all your education, um, that you can still remain so curious? You know, I actually think that when I was pursuing my degrees, I was not as curious as I am now. And that's because back then I thought of it, I thought of curiosity as being about pursuing new knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that was the purpose of curiosity. And now I think about it, the purpose of curiosity is actually to create human connection. That, yeah. And so when I was... I was so focused on doing the research so I could collect this research so I can so I can put together a wonderful dissertation that other people would admire. And yet as a researcher, it's very solitary. I was alone in the archive, very focused on my individual genius. I mean, the ivory tower is a real thing, right? And so it wasn't until I came back to Seattle, uh, which is my hometown, my parents uh, started the first privately owned Vietnamese language newspaper in the Pacific Northwest. And I came back in 2008 in the wake of the Great Recession and the global decline of the newspaper industry. And I actually had to start collaborating for the first time ever. And I have to tell you, it was really hard for me. It was really hard for me to work with other people because I thought, why are you so slow? Why are we talking so much? Why aren't we just focused on getting these certain outcomes? Because when I was a researcher, I knew I had to interview, what I had to read, what stories I had to distill to get to write the paper. And so there was a lot more ambiguity in building relationships because we can't know what other humans are going to say or do. And I was so miserable <laughs> and it was watching other people who were real, who seemed to, to be great leaders, that other people admired them. And for me to also recognize I was not having fun for me to start to, to change and to take the time to get to know people. And then I realized, wow, this is actually quite fun. And that was liberating. And so then I shifted from thinking that it's about building something, it's this new thing, and to understanding that actually it's about human connection. I do this not just so I can have this dissertation. It's so that I can actually connect with people. And that means, you know, the second practicing curiosity is learning about other people and letting them learn about me because that is reciprocity. Before I was only exploring outward. I wasn't sharing myself. I was just exploring outward. And to share myself, wow, that takes, I mean, that takes being a wholehearted leader. Wow, I love that reframe, right? Uh, many people think of curiosity as I'm curious about a particular subject matter, it's about knowledge accumulation, but for you, it's a form of connection. 
I just love mm-hmm. it. I just love it. I think it's very invitational when we lean in with curiosity. It's it's telling the other person, "Hey, I'm curious about you. Hey, tell me more. Hey, I'm interested in you." As the saying goes, right? It's like you make more friends by being genuinely interested in others than to get them interested in you. And I think. Mm-hmm. I think that and, and, and also sharing ourselves. I just read this book, The Good Life: Lessons Learned from the the World's Longest Study on Happiness, and they talk about how good relationships are the key to a good, healthy life. And they talk about radical curiosity being important to that. And yet, they frame curiosity very much as learning about other people. And my tweak on that is, I also have to learn about myself and share myself because I actually learn about myself when I share myself with others. Yeah. Their reactions, their interpretations are something that I'm learning. I actually get to learn about something new. We are actually mysteries to ourselves. There are times where I didn't even know I was thinking something until I shared. So one of the things I really am fascinated by are the assumptions we make and how we can, we all make assumptions and getting curious about our assumptions. So about 10 years ago, I was trying to transition from working at the newspaper to working corporate. And I was doing a lot of informational interviews. And I talked to someone who was at a 25 year old marketing person at Microsoft. And I actually, I met her through this person who I was dating at the time. So we actually had some decent interactions. And so I was asking her about how to get a job. And I told her about all of my accomplishments at the newspaper. And then she said, do you mind if I ask you if you have a degree? And I said, yes, I have a PhD. And I got off the phone and I was so upset. I was like, how dare she think that I don't have a degree? Like she's being so condescending. And I held that for years. I felt like I was this underdog and that she was dismissing me. And I shared that story with someone. And you know what they said? Why were you so upset? And I was just, oh my gosh. I have these internalized elitism about those who have BAs who went to college, right? And here I am thinking that she was looking down at me. And yet I was also thinking, I was like being condescending to those who don't have BAs, right? And like, I didn't realize that until someone asked me, why did that upset you so much? Because I had not asked myself that question. I was so focused on how she made me feel bad. And so I shared that because I surprised myself. And I got to learn that because I shared that story with someone else. And they asked me this simple question that I hadn't asked myself. Wow, that is so powerful. So, so powerful. I came to a similar awareness as well for myself is when I felt sometimes I have an inferiority complex when I compare myself with people more successful than me. But by the same token, I also have a sense of superiority complex. When I am talking to people I deem as maybe not as qualified as me or, you know, not as intelligent as me. And I came to realize that they were actually both sides of the same coin. I mean, you cannot Mm -hmm. feel one without the other, right? That's this dichotomy here. It's so fascinating. So there's this whole Mm -hmm. idea of ranking yourself vis-a-vis other people. And that's how we came to that kind of suffering, or maybe it's a strong word to say, but that kind of internal pain that we're not even realizing that we're having. Well, it's easier to actually paint ourselves as the victim than yes. as the perpetrator. Right? Oh. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> we're, we're, getting, we're getting to the whole conversation on drama triangle. <laughs> but, uh, I know. <laughs> but I really like, I really like what, you, what, what you just shared. Um, since, since you did talk a lot about you know, this whole sense of you feel like an underdog and how that should be so condescending to you. And you also talk about you wanting to really, you know, share of yourself so that people get to know you as well so let me just you know pull the the timeline a bit further to when you were first arrived in the united states you shared in a previous conversation that your parents were refugees and they were they were goat people so you you were born in in vietnam but you moved to seattle at a very very young age tell me more about that yeah so we came actually when i was two months old that was in 19, early 1979. My father had been, after the Vietnam War ended, he had been sent to a communist re-education camp, a prison camp. And so after he left, after three years, after they, he was released, he was so afraid that he would get sent back that he said, we need to leave. And so we were actually the first in our family to leave. And I have a Vietnamese name, it's Wai Hung, and that means to remember one's homeland. My father gave me that name because he knew that we were not going to go back. And my my parents actually never returned to Vietnam. I've actually since lived in Vietnam on and off for five years. 
And so that has been the refugee, the boat people experience. That identity is really important to me. I grew up, because my parents started the first privately owned Vietnamese newspaper, they instilled a deep sense of pride. There are people who feel shame around being refugees. And my parents always said, we should be proud of that. And they would even say, oh, there's some Vietnamese who don't call themselves refugees, and yet we are refugees. I actually had a conversation recently with a, another Vietnamese American who was actually born in the U.S. And, and I shared that with her, and she was so shocked because she was just Yes, that's not what I was told. We were not proud of that. And so I definitely think that my parents instilled such a sense of, of pride because to leave Vietnam that way takes a lot of courage to, for that quest for freedom. Uh, there's this poem uh, called Home written by Warshan Shire. She's a Somali British poet. And she says, no one puts their child on an open boat unless the water is safer than the land. Wow. I love And I it. think about any time, yeah, anytime I'm feeling scared, I just think about what my parents did. Just, no, you know what? This is small stuff. Wow. Wow. So I'm just curious to know, right, being a so-called refugee, right? Did it also shape your sense of being an underdog? I think it, not so much as an underdog, but optimism. So optimism was really, and I think we talked about this, that there's this difference between resilience and optimism. We definitely had resilience. And there was also a sense of, hey, hope. We can go and do things. And also that we are a small and yet mighty group. I mm. think of the, the Vietnamese community in Seattle. We have totally, they, they have this phrase, punch above our weight class. Like despite our size, we've actually been yeah. able to accomplish so much. And I think that's largely because we have a, we're a community and we help each other. And my parents taught me that too. It was just ask for help, support one another. We're not going to do this alone. And I think that the other thing that was really the, the refugee identity that really influenced me is just this constant quest for freedom. Because my parents didn't come to, all these refugees didn't come here for just for economic mobility. It was to escape political oppression. And there's a difference there. There's a difference between being pulled to a country and being pushed from your homeland. Wow. I'm just really processing the gravity of what you just shared. You know, of course, the common narrative of people thinking of, you know, seeking the American dream. But there's this other part of the narrative here that you're sharing is being pushed to escape political oppression. And that's mm -hmm. a very, very strong motivating factor as well. And that's what drives your ability to punch above your weight. And I think that it makes me think about that there are multiple perspectives, right? Because the dominant perspective is, oh, people come to the U.S. for economic mobility, for this American dream. Yes, that is one truth. Another truth is people escaped <laughs> political oppression. That's another truth. And they both coexist. They are both true at the same time. And so I think that it's really easy to go into this black and white thinking, right or wrong, and in practicing curiosity, it's accepting we can have multiple truths coexist at the same time. And the pursuit of this knowledge isn't to find one truth. It's to find all of these other ways of seeing the world. And also when I hear those, I then discover things about myself. Like I didn't realize that I was so entrenched in, say, uh, the, the American dream narrative until I heard something else. And so... I think that my training as a historian and also honoring really my parents' quest for freedom is a constant theme because that means that if I have freedom to think what I want, I've got to give someone else the space to do that. That's why I'm just like, you do you, let me do me, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we can coexist. Wow. Wow. So that's the reason why you develop this curiosity as well as a, as a form of adaptation as a form of finding out and what keeps you able to, you know, find your footing in this new environment as well. So you did mention that your parents were upper middle class people back in Vietnam. So when they first came to the US, they also started the first privately owned Vietnamese newspaper in the Pacific Northwest. Was that right? Yes, that's right. And in, in what way has that also shaped the way you show up in the world in terms of not feeling like 
okay, you know, we are boat people, we are refugees, and therefore we are lesser than, but we are just as capable of contributing to the whatever society that we are in. My parents thought it was really important to celebrate the good news, celebrate the accomplishments of our community. And I think if you look at mainstream news, they look at marginalized communities as, oh, look at how they're suffering. This is what they need. And and the purpose of our newspaper, and I think a lot of actually immigrant, refugee, people of color newspapers, is to celebrate is to celebrate all of the good things that are happening in our community. And so that was a constant theme of all the things that we have to be proud of. I love it. I love it. I think there's one piece that it just triggered me uh, in me as you're sharing. As a historian yourself, I think it's so important for us to really own our origin stories. And I think this is something that I personally believe is extremely, extremely powerful in the corporate world as well. I think sometimes when we put on our corporate suits, you know, we we step into an identity of, you know, KPI driven and, and all professional and everything like that. So how important is it for leaders to embrace their origin stories and, as you say, share that story? I think it's incredibly important because people want to know who is this person in front of me? Where, what influences their ideas and how they see the world. Uh, one of my favorite questions when I'm taking people through uh, my book, The Seven Forms of Respect, is to ask who and what influenced how you think about respect. And then that, that's you know, just, okay, well, huh, it's my parents, my family, my teachers, and then the place where I grew up. So for example, in the American South, people say, ma'am, sir, there, there's these honorifics that we wouldn't say in the Pacific Northwest. All of those things influence. In, in Vietnam, hierarchy is embedded in the language, right? So we're always who we are in relationship to someone else. And so those are important parts of how we think about respect, how we see the world. And because after I ask people to share that, then I say, if you are influenced by these people, think about how you are influencing people. Whoa, I am influencing people, even not by any, saying anything. I don't even have to say, this is respect. The very way that I am living my life is influencing other people. Beautiful. Uh, as the saying often goes, uh, that I already saying before, that you give a better sermon with your action than with your words. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I haven't heard yeah. that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, people see how you show up. So now since you you brought up your book, Seven Forms of Respect, I have a lot of respect <laughs> or admiration, for want of a better word, for the book. Because when I read the book, I was like, wow, this has got that potential to be like, you know, the five languages of love. Because I've never really thought about that before, right? It's like uh, people think of love as love before that book came out. Just the same as the way I think of respect as, yeah, of course, duh, everybody wants respect. But you actually broke it down into seven forms of respect. And I really, really love it. I think this this is a great book that all leaders should read. I mean, everyone should read. <laughs> I personally think it's not a hyperbole to say that. So how did you come about writing about this topic? Because... As per our conversation, a lot of what you have done earlier is around curiosity. So what, mm -hmm. what is the trigger for you to dive into this topic? So I think the first one was the community building work that I did. When I came back to Seattle, I did a lot of community organizing and just bringing together people from very different backgrounds. We just had different expectations of how we want to be treated and the friction would come up. I still remember an engineer and a labor union organizer and the engineer would ask all these deep probing questions. And the labor organizer was just, why are you asking me all these questions? I got this. Don't you trust me? And they just had different expectations. And so that was the first part. And then I started to do formal research and I started to ask people, how do you want to be treated? And they kept bringing up the word respect. I want to be treated with respect. And so then once I started asking, well, what does respect mean to you? And then they had all of these different things. <laughs> Sometimes they were actually two people would say the opposite thing. Like, I don't want people to give me unsolicited feedback. And then another person like respect means giving unsolicited feedback. Right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and which shows that how we can, mm. two people, we can agree on what respect feels like. We disagree about what it looks like. And then, you know, as I reflected though, I realized that so much of my lived experience also influenced it. And I, I went back and just, well, the fact that I grew up bicultural Vietnamese in the U.S., the fact that I lived in the U.K., Germany, France, and Vietnam as an adult, and how we had different expectations in all of those places. So 
I realized that it was my lived experience, my community building and formal research that influenced this framework, the creation of this framework. I love it. I love the framework. So maybe you can just uh, very quickly go through the seven forms of respect with us. Yes. So I have this bookmark right here. <laughs> and it, there's this acronym PICA, P-P-I-C-C-A-A. And it stands for Procedure, Punctuality, Information, Candor, Consideration, Acknowledgement, and Attention. So those are the seven forms. And it's really important for people to understand it's not about getting all seven. Do not try to get all seven forms. You are not more respectful the more forms you prioritize. You're probably, <laughs> you're probably more tired, right? And it's actually about trying to get really clear on what are the ones that I prioritize and why? What is it in my life? What is it in my experiences that have made me prioritize what I prioritize? I'll, I'll just give you an example. Punctuality is really important to me because growing up, my mom was always late picking me up from school. And she was working really late. And yet the school staff had to wait with me because they couldn't let a five-year-old just sit there by herself. And so I felt really bad for the school staff. And I felt a lot of anxiety. And so I said, when I grow up, I'm not going to do that. And I have to tell you, I still feel anxiety around that. And yet someone else could have that exact same experience and have a different reaction. Oh, what's the problem? My mom was late. Not a big deal. And yet when I share that story with people, now they understand why I have anxiety anxiety. It's not that I'm being rigid. It's because I have anxiety because of these early experiences. And that kind of requires us to go in and explain why it matters, not just because it's important. Because right now what people do is, why is punctuality important? Because it is, because it's respectful. Well, why? Because it's respectful, because it's disrespectful to be late, right? But they don't actually share personal stories. And maybe that's because we haven't asked ourselves. And until we start to ask ourselves, and this is the interesting thing, like, and when we share with other people, yeah, that, that bothers me. Oh, well, you know, why does that bother you? And that back and forth can help people discover why it bothers them, because maybe they never thought about it before. Yeah, this is uh, very linked to what you said earlier on, right? It's uh, the internal curiosity piece, right? Asking ourselves that question, mm -hmm. like, why is that so important to me? Why am I so hung up over that? And being able mm -hmm. to express and then share it with people so that there isn't any tension around that. And sometimes I'm a big believer that, you know, when it comes to employee onboarding, when it comes to, you know, integrating new team members together, I think it's really good to really have all this established right up front. And people are going to go like, mm -hmm. oh, why is she telling me all this? Why is he telling me all this? He's so rigid. <laughs> but I think it's better to be rigid up front than to have conflicts later, right? Like, because usually what happens is at the start, it's all about, you know, nicey, nicey, kissy, kissy. Everyone's just nice to each mm -hmm, other. Mm -hmm. But then when conflicts happen later and, and people are like standing on two different sides of the values, and that's how conflicts escalate. Because both are standing firm on their own grounds, their own perspective, and they're not willing to change it. And they don't know why. So I think this whole you know, open sharing and this framework of these seven forms of respect is definitely very, very helpful. I personally can see myself doing this work with my own clients as well. I think that's so important. It gives us a vernacular, a taxonomy, right, to explain why people may disagree around, you know, uh, simple things like you, you haven't been copying me on the emails, right? Because for mm -hmm, some people, mm -hmm. information is a form of respect. But for other people, copying me on emails that I have absolutely no, um, no relevance to or it's not something that I have to act upon, it's just a, a good to know, uh, it's a form of disrespect. It's like, why are you copying me on mm -hmm. hundreds and, and thousands of emails? But some people, it's like, yeah, you know, keeping me on in the loop is definitely a form of respect. So I think that really gives us the lenses and that, the language to really get to know each other and come to understanding and collaboration. As you face the challenges of living up to your own and others' expectations, you may sometimes feel lost and lonely. However, know that you're not alone. We are here to support you in leaning courageously into your heart's promptings. If you'd like more tips, resources, and to learn more about how you can live more wholeheartedly, or to book me as a speaker, trainer, or coach, please go to coentan.com. That's C-O-E-N-T-A-N.com. Well, I'm super excited that you're, that you're introducing it to people. I dream that one day people will say, what are your forms of respect? The way that we talk about what are your love languages? That it's a way to understand that I 
that you and I want to respect one another, and we just have different ways of seeing it. But there's one more layer to it, though. I have to point out, as I read your book.、Um, A lot of times when we talk about love languages, it's kind of like we we want to give and to receive, but something happens in, in the forms of respect. What you want to give, it may not be what you want to receive, right? Like for example,、yes. you may be very happy giving feedback to other people, but you may not be so comfortable giving feedback to yourself. Well, I'm talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> But、uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I I really like that distinction between like to give versus、yes. like to receive. Yeah, so I describe respect as dynamic. It's dynamic. It's relative. It's subjective, and it's also contradictory. It's contradictory because we as humans are contradictory, and so I talk about these three dimensions. And so this is where the parallels to five love languages ends because there's a lot more complexity in in respect. And so the first part is hierarchy. Power. It's about power dynamics. We are always interacting with people who have more power, equal power, or less power. Even if it's just me, you know, people who have more power than me, my clients. <laughs> people have less power than me, my vendors. Right? How hierarchy influences how we think about respect, whether it's conscious or unconscious. The second dimension is what you just mentioned, what we call give versus get. The way I like to give respect can differ from the way that I like to get respect. So maybe I like to surprise people, but I don't want to be surprised, right? And then that can also be linked to the first that first dimension of hierarchy. Maybe I like to get feedback from my boss, but not from someone who reports to me, <laughs> right? And so that's another dynamic. And then the third one, and this is the one that requires practicing curiosity even with the most: what matters to me? What matters to me versus what should matter to me? Because、wow. we've all been socialized, yeah, we've all been socialized to think respect means this, and I should expect this.、And、what we don't ask ourselves is, do I actually care about this? And sometimes, like, yes, I do care, and maybe sometimes I feel pressured to pretend I don't care, but it does matter to me. So, for example, acknowledgement really matters to me, and it took me quite a while to admit that because it felt a little like cringy, you know? I was like, oh, am I going to tell people that? I want acknowledgement and praise and verbal gratitude. Yes, I do. <laughs> I feel it inside. I feel it inside, and so I have to admit that because otherwise, this kind of gets to. There, I make a distinction between disrespect versus the lack of respect. You know, disrespect is intentional. Like I knew you didn't like it, and I did it anyway. So that's disrespect. Lack of respect means I didn't know that mattered to you, and maybe you told me it didn't matter to you. But it really does. It really did matter to you, right? And so we have to have self-respect. We have to be honest with ourselves. Like this matters to me, and I need to let people know that. Because if I don't, then I'm not allowing them to respect me in the ways that actually do matter to me. But that takes a lot of work because that's hard to admit what we want.、It、can be hard to admit it, and then it can be even harder to、yes. say it out loud because maybe I don't want to sound demanding. I don't want to sound needy. And yet, it's important. Are you planning to write a sequel to the first book? <laughs> I'm going to write a sequel for the. I definitely want to do it a version at home in our personal <laughs> lives because I think that re- respect and love are different, and also what we want at home with our family can be different from what we want at work, and that is related to what I call the shared purpose, the nature of this of the work, right? Because for a family, our purpose is just to be together. It's just to support one another. Whereas at work, it's just to deliver a service to fulfill our mission, and、yeah. that can then impact what we're willing to accept, what we expect from one another, what we give to one another. So, for example, maybe I'm going to give a lot of candor at work, but I'm not okay with not giving candor at home. It can be different. It can be different. So, let's say like I'm okay with giving candor at work, but I don't want to give candor at home. It's not、mm. important to me at home, and so. It's interesting, actually, when people talk about bring your authentic self to work, <laughs> right? And I think it's like there's no authentic self. There's like authentic selves. Right? There are so many different versions of our authentic、wow. selves, and how I am at work. It's okay for that to be different from how I am at home. I don't need to be the same person, and that doesn't mean I'm being fake. It just means that these are different aspects of me that are showing up differently depending on the context. I mean, you mentioned you asked earlier about how what influenced and 
the seven forms of respect. And, and you know, after the book came out and as people received it, I realized in a way how fluid and in a way almost like Asian it is in that there's so much fluidity to it. Whereas in Western culture, there is very much of a binary, this or that. And there's just, and here it's just, there's so much adaptation and fluidity. And that's what makes, that can actually be frustrating for a lot of people. I will tell you the criticism I've gotten about the book is I want to know, <laughs> like, why don't you just tell me what forms I am all the time? It kept changing. Like, yeah. And cause people would take the quiz and it's like, well, I could choose a different answer in this context. I'm like, yeah, that's the point <laughs> for you to understand and name the dynamics in that context. That's making you feel different. Wow, this is so much you're sharing here that can be unpacked, right? I did the whole idea about self-respect mm -hmm. as well. It's like sometimes you're asking for something, but you don't even know why you're asking for it. Because it may not even matter to you. And really that question of asking what really matters to you is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And of course, the mm -hmm. dynamism of the idea of respect. It's just, just so much contextual variables in this whole dynamic. And um, there's just so much to unpack here. It's like, wow, it's like you're, you're really giving us a lot of value here, um, Dr. Julie. It's like, wow, it's just... I'm just, <laughs> I'm just taking it all in. It's like, wow, what a great conversation. And, and that's me giving you acknowledgement, respect. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> oh, I, I mean it wholeheartedly, okay? <laughs> yeah. So um, just, just talk a little bit about your work that you do. I mean, uh, organization development, you work with teams and really helping them to align around the idea of respect as well. So do you see your job as a, like a salvage job or like a developmental job, right? It's like if a team is like toxic and they don't get along and they come to you and say, hey, Dr. Julie is like, we are on the verge of really at each other's throat. We're about to throw each other, each other off the building. Like, can you come and like save us and, you know, uh, do a, like a seven forms of respect for us and hopefully I love this sort question. things out? <laughs> I love this question. I love this yeah. question because I am not a salvage. <laughs> I am not. I'm much more developmental. And because here's the question I ask people do they want to learn from each other if this team doesn't want to learn from each other then i can't help them i'll compare it like with five love languages it's not going to help an abusive relationship seven forms of respect is not going to help toxic workplaces there are so many teams that want to communicate better that want to have a good culture they genuinely care about doing that that's what this framework is for. The toxic workplaces, it's not going to help that. They need psychologists, <laughs> they need therapists, right? And so I really love your question because I think it sets expectations. And one of those telltale signs is sometimes people come to me and it's just, yes, I want us to have respect. I want, that means that they need to do this, this, and this. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not willing to go, huh, well, can I... Because, you know, a question I like to ask people for practicing curiosity, there are two questions. The first question is, do I want this person to learn from me? Do I want others to learn from me? Second question is, am I willing to learn from them? And can people answer that with an honest yes? Because I see that difference. If people aren't willing to learn from one another, then I don't even actually have a foundation to work with. There is something much deeper there. So yes, it's developmental, not salvage. Wow, I love it. I love it. I love it. I especially like the idea that um, similarly to, you know, love languages, right? It's like it's not going to save an abusive marriage or abusive relationship mm -hmm. because if you're just always quarreling, love language is not going to help, right? So it's you wanting to enhance your relationship, you enhance your team culture. That's where these really come into play. I love it, love it, love it. So in your work, right, with all these teams, do you have any successful case studies from organizations applying these seven forms of respect and have seen real tangible growth. We're talking about like bottom line mm -hmm. growth. Yes. Yes. So the ones that are willing to practice. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I can't just come in and save them from a two hour or four hour session, right? They actually then have to be able to revisit the conversations. So I remember with one team, they were a leadership team. And they were really kind of struggling to get to know one another because half of them were new and there was just a lot of communication and, and distrust. And so we helped them identify, okay, what are the forms of respect that are currently being practiced? And what are the forms of respect that you think, and then we had a conversation about the nature of the work. And then we talked about what are the forms of respect you think you 
need to to practice to uphold this, to uphold your shared work. And then there was we had debates about that. Is that really the one? Do we really need to have that? What are the top three? Why does it matter? And if we don't have it, then does it actually hurt us? Is this a nice to have versus a must have? And then we actually even compared what's the natural capability. We looked at what are the individuals, their individual preferences were and mapped it against what they said as a group. And so that we could see some parts with some forms, they were aligned and others, oh, there's going to be a, uh, I think information, there's not much preference for information as individuals. And yet there was a high need for it as a team. So we knew, okay, there's going to be a stretch there. And yet they agreed, yes, information is going to be important. And then what they started to do, because I recommended, hey, in your biweekly team meetings, spend 10 minutes talking about this, about how it's showing up and when you're not doing it and spend three months on one form, continually talk about that and also keeping each other accountable on that. And then they would go to the next one. And so they told me that they were much more deeply connected and that there was a lot more trust that was built on the team that came from practicing with one another. So that's that's just an example. And I think the key here is practice. Fantastic. Brilliant, brilliant. So usually we end with a quick fire round of questions. So are you ready for a quick fire round of questions? I don't know if I'm ready, but here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm sure you're ready. You're, you're, I don't know you're, if you're people are ever ready. Yeah, so we can only you can always be as ready as yeah. possible. Yeah. All right, the first question is this. You just answer with uh, a sentence or two, right? That's what the name quickfire means. The first question, what's the most powerful question you've ever been asked before? What's it like to be you? Wow. Love it. Second question, who is a mentor or a supporter who has made the biggest difference in your life? My father, he passed away a few years ago and he just, I constantly think about him and just how he was so generous and kind and and yet courageous in this quiet way. And he just, and he also, I, I heard somewhere that fathers really instilled a sense of confidence in their, their children and he just really believed in me and believed that anything was possible. And so constantly he was, and he was kind of my secret cheerleader in the back, constantly just cheering me on, which is another reason why acknowledgement is important to me. Wow. What is one of the most courageous things you have ever done that has made a difference in your life? I was getting pushed out of a job and I went to some mentors who I hadn't talked to before. They were actually new mentors and they gave me advice and I actually confronted my manager (laughs) about it and I found out how much time I would have left in the job, which meant I knew and I could go into that office knowing, okay, worst case scenario, I'm here for another two and a half months. And it was, I felt a lot of courage in saying, I know that I could be let go and I want to know how much time I have rather than waiting for them to make that decision. Wow, that's radical curiosity there. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And I just want to end uh, with this beautiful analogy and metaphor that uh, you always use. I heard you use on several other podcasts. The metaphor of the rubber band. Would you like to talk more about that? Yes. So I have a rubber band right here. <laughs> and what that means is it's in contrast to the golden rule. It's not about treating people the way that you want to be treated because maybe they don't want to be treated that way. The rubber band rule is we're able to flex. The respect is, is actually pretty stretchy. If I know that you like something, even if I don't like it, I'll stretch for you. Sometimes what happens is we're in situations in workplaces where we constantly find ourselves stretching and stretching and stretching to accommodate and make other people happy. And what happens is oh. we snap and break like a rubber band. And so with the rubber band rule, it's about knowing what are my internal breaking points what is going to make me snap and i have to know that for myself that practicing curiosity in myself because some people are big and stretchy and like whatever goes with the flow and other people are very tight small rubber bands and the rubber band rule is i have to know that for myself i can't expect other people to know that i have to know what's going to make me snap before i snap <laughs> so Fantastic. This has been a fabulous uh, sharing, uh, Dr. Julie Pham. On behalf of our listeners, uh, let's just, just like to say a big thank you to you for your generosity in your sharing, your wisdom, your stories. 
I think there's so much for, for our audience to take back and to be able to practice. And, and the keyword I, I, I wrote down here is practice. Practice curiosity. The seven forms of respect is a form of practice. Leadership is a form of practice. Self-leadership. People leadership. It's all a practice. And I, that's the word I actually wrote down here. And thank you so much for it. inspiring us to keep up with this practice and being compassionate with ourselves. Where can our listeners find out more about you on socials or on, on the internet? I am most active on LinkedIn, on social media. So please just find me, uh, Julie Pam PhD, also curiosity-based, our company page. You can also visit our curiositybased.com or formsofrespect.com, our two websites. And I have lots of free resources, by the way, on those sites. Yeah, I took, I took their assessment. It's very fascinating stuff to get to know myself a lot better. Dear listeners, uh, go on down to follow Dr. Julie Pham. Give her a follow. Uh, consume her content. I highly recommend them. And uh, the links will be also in the show notes. So once again, uh, Dr. Julie, thank you so much. And I look forward to really catch up with you again somewhere around the world, whether it's in Seattle, which is a place I like, I love a lot, or maybe in Singapore. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed this conversation. I'd love to see you in Singapore. I think they have the best food in the world. So... <laughs> Oh, yes, yes, yes. Do come and visit. Okay. Bye for now, Dr. Julie. Thank you, Cohen. Wow, what a great conversation once again. And what really stood out for me in this conversation with Dr. Julie is the idea of internal curiosity. Self-awareness is one of the big pillars. In fact, it's the first pillar of our wholehearted framework. And... Dr. Julie have emphasized several times throughout the podcast that we have to practice that inward journey of being curious with ourselves. Because if we are not curious with ourselves, how can we then show up authentically and be able to, sh- to share of ourselves openly with people so that people can get curious about us and understand us. And I really like what she said also around curiosity being a practice and the seven forms of respect being a practice. I really like how she talks about it in such a relaxing way, knowing that something is a practice makes it more freeing for us instead of giving ourselves so much pressure about attaining a certain destination or a certain state of competence. Knowing that it's a practice allows us that free pass to keep on practicing, seeking feedback, and getting better at it. I tremendously enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you benefited a lot too. Thanks for being part of this heartwarming conversation today. If you've enjoyed the show as much as I have creating it for you, I really appreciate it if you can leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And while you're there, Why not subscribe to the channel so you won't miss a future episode? To the next episode, stay wholehearted.